0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined by David Moser, who goose-stepped his way here to the studio in perfect 75-centimeter strides of PLA-grade precision. How are you, David?
1: Good, good. I've been practicing that for weeks ahead of the parade. It was more of a duck step, though, by the time I
0: got (laughs) it. (laughs) So we're recording on Saturday, September 5th, which is two days after the big military parade on Chang'an Avenue in front of Tiananmen. And Beijing is getting back to normal after the commotion around the parade itself. Today, we'll talk about the war, the end of which the parade was, of course, intended to commemorate. And we'll focus on how discourse about the war and the respective roles of those who fought it has changed in the 70 years since it ended. We'll also talk about the parade itself, which was meant to project or convey something uh, and how it was perceived and received in so many disparate ways by the different people watching. Lots to unpack here. So today we are thrilled to be joined by an historian of modern China I've long admired, a tremendously lucid commentator who many of you may know from his books and from his star turns on BBC's In Our Time podcast, one of my favorites, and on BBC's Radio Radio 3's Free Thinking, Professor Rana Mitter. Rana Mitter is professor of The History and Politics of Modern China at the Institute for Chinese Studies at Oxford University, and author most recently of China's War with Japan, 1937 to 1945, The Struggle for Survival, known to our American listeners as Forgotten Ally. And uh, he wrote a wonderful book on modern Chinese intellectual history, which I'm actually just now reading. It's The Legacy of the May 4th. It's called A, uh, A, A Bitter Revolution, Professor Mitter was elected a fellow of the British Academy in July this year. Professor Mitter Rana,
2: if I may, welcome to Seneca. Very good to see you, Kaiser. And I have to say, I did not goose step here today, but I did spend a little time polishing my medals.
0: Oh, good, 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 good. And many medals you have. Um, they're... they're
2: well, if they, I ever get they,
0: they, I'm blinded looking at them. A chest full of medals. I wish. No, yes. no, I'll have to work a little harder to get inside
2: the PLA. It's amazing.
0: The, uh, the, the British Academy, that medal is the size of a fucking dinner plate. It's huge.
2: Well, you know, that and probably the, the one for uh, kind of uh, major, super uh, um, academic uh, pinup, no doubt. <laughs> Sadly, I wish that that were true. But in fact, those who have see, those, it's very fortunate that here on radio, on podcast, you cannot see my expanding middle-aged stomach, which I think our, our listeners should be spared. <laughs> 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 so Ronnie, you were actually in Beijing specifically for the parade and for commemorative activities around it, is that right? That's right. I've been here basically as part of a series of academic activities and also some wider activities around the parade, including an academic conference which looked at various aspects of the way the war is perceived now in China as well as its more detailed military history.
0: Well, then you are in a perfect position to talk to us about all things that we want to talk about. Um, I want to also give a, a quick shout-out to one of our former guests, one of our favorite guests, to Rohir Krimer, also of Oxford, who's been on the program now many times. Um, <laughs> yeah, always making Three, four times yeah, or something, yeah. 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 Uh, and he made the introduction to Rana, and he made this appearance possible. So, uh, And I also wanted to say to everyone here, I'm not
2: that sure, that, sure that anyone except Canadians and Chinese do it's actually. It's only the, the, China, the Canadians who
1: know who he is. Right? Indeed. He's Norman the guy who does you. crosstalk on TV. Right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Mysteriously resurrected, uh, absolutely. Well, still the most famous Canadian in China, I yeah, guess. Right. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, in, in modern China, um, just about. Uh, it's not just, just modern China. I mean, you're an historian, Rana. I'm, I think so all they of say, us who so are, are, are familiar with Chinese historiography to a greater or lesser extent, all of us here. Um, to to some extent, the, the interpretation of history, uh, no matter where you are, is an inherently political act, and, and that seems to be especially the case here in China, where through you know the long imperial past there was a, a a sanctioned orthodoxy an orthodox version of history a particular set of notionally objective truths about history a specific moral or f- political lessons to be drawn from those truths and anything deviating from those truths was was heterodox um, in modern china too i think just about every important historical personage and every event of historical significance and the meaning the legacy the historical facts themselves are all contested they're all enlisted in the service of one set of of competing ideologies or party factions or another. And so when somebody pronounces on the meaning of the May 4th movement, or um, as you make very clear, Rana, in in A Bitter Revolution, or when somebody, you know, makes a claim about what Sun Yat-sen's late-life ideological orientation was, or, you know, in many ways, how they come down, how, how they answer the big historical questions, it says as much about, say, a Chinese person's you know, political orientation as, say, an American's answer to the question of what was the cause of the American Civil War, um, and the uh, the Communist Party's narrative around its role in the defeat of Japan seems to have been, I think, um, one of the, the load bearing pillars of of, of legitimacy. Why why do you suppose that is? Why why are they they so much invested in this? Does the mantle of nationalism really rest so much on people buying its claims about its role in the
2: war? Well, I think your analysis is exactly right, Kaiser. And one of the reasons, the kind of more long durée reason, has to do with what you mentioned at the beginning, which is, in a sense, a legacy of that idea that history serves contemporary political purposes. Now, I'm a bit nervous because just sitting to my left here, we have David, who I know is an expert in uh, Confucian philosophy. So I'm (laughs) going to talk about Confucian. And hope that I don't catch his eye when he says that I'm completely wrong. But there are these conceptions that go back very far in terms of Confuci- Confucian governance of things that are zheng and things that are xie. in other words, things that are orthodox and that's heterodox. Right. And, and historical interpretation, in a way that, you know, the liberal tradition of historical interpretation doesn't really allow, really encompasses that in some ways, even in China today. Of course, we're not in a Confucian society in the classic sense in China. We're in one that's been irrevocably changed by modernity and by Marxism but all the same the idea that there's a good interpretation and a bad interpretation still stands pretty central to the way that things are thought about and the war against Japan, the second world war in China has really fallen into that category in certain ways that said one of the things that is interesting over the slightly more recent term by which i mean let's say between the 1950s and 60s and today is that the aspects of the war that have become part of that orthodoxy in China have changed. What do i mean by that? Let's think about the way in which the war is portrayed in textbooks. In newspapers, in you know, cartoon books, you know, graphic novels, back in the fifties and sixties, and I have to say, some of those cartoon books, in particular, repay uh, reading with huge amounts of you know, mind going indeed. off. A lot of <laughs> lot, lots of cartoon violence with an emphasis on the on, on the violence. But the story is very much about what you might still call the People's War. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's very much about a rural story, you know, the guerrillas behind the lines who are uh, helping the Communist Party in its rise to power, throwing bombs at the Japanese, harassing them as they try and solidify their rule, preventing them from doing that. So it's a story which very much has the Chinese Communist Party at its heart, and one that's really an internally looking one, an internally directed one, about the Chinese Communist Party and its relationship to the wider population. In a in sense, the Second World War is a sort of backdrop, and the Japanese themselves are kind of a backdrop to the story of inevitable revolutionary success that of course culminates in 1949. Now let's fast forward half a century from that picture from the Middle Maoist period to where we are today. It's not that those elements are absent. And I suspect we'll go on to talk a little bit about the party and its role in shaping history today in just a few minutes. But let's look at just the overall framework for, for two seconds. Mm-hmm. Today, the phrase that you will see literally plastered all over the walls, and I've been walking around Beijing the last few days and seen it on you know, big red posters everywhere, is that China was, above all, part of a world anti-fascist war. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's part of the allies, along with the US, the Soviet Union, the British Empire, and it's part of a global enterprise. Now, this surprises me not at all, because if China has one message in terms of self-projection today, it's the idea of internationalization, globalization, projection of a peaceful and um, stabilizing presence into international society, and talking about its role in the one war that helped to shape a stable post-war order, one that was on the side of side of light rather than darkness, is a really good entry point, historically speaking, to making that case.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and I mean, the narrative has changed significantly. Uh, and it'd be interesting to kind of trace how that's happened. It's not just uh, you know an internally facing uh, communist party struggle that then becomes you know China as part of a global struggle, uh, beginning in. Uh, the 1980s, we started to see a sort of quiet and careful rehabilitation of the Guomindang's role in the war itself as well. So it wasn't just peasant battles, and, and suddenly it was the Battle of Shanghai as well. It was it was uh, you know the, the 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 major heroic efforts, and Jiang himself, Jiang Jieshi, uh, underwent a bit of a rehabilitation as well. I'm that, that's that's really interesting. Um,
1: yeah, in we, the, uh, the in the movie. Uh the, at the was it two thousand nine the, the founding of the Repu- founding yeah, of the party yeah. the republic with <laughs> uh, that sort of uh, rehabilitated pre- presented Chiang as a more, you know, as more complex uh, figure as flawed but flawed but yes right and also this plays into the narrative of trying to sort of bring Taiwan hmm. back into the fold. I, I also just want to bring up just a question. Uh, this narrative, the change of the narrative, it seems to me partly is just a matter also of a different reality, not a global a geopolitical reality, but the fact that the party controlled the message for so long. You look at just this one movie that pl- that was uh, made in 1965 called Tunnel Warfare, mm-hmm. which has been seen by like. A- billion people or two billion people or something like that. And and now the information environment is so different that people just cannot buy this message that it was the, the Chinese, you know, the CCP and the working alone against the Japanese. So they've had to, the, the, the change of the message has been because the, the, the realities are, are too present to anyone who's on Weibo.
2: You know. But not just that. I mean, what's going on at the moment? I mean, we keep coming back to this question of narrative. And I think that's really where the heart of this question lies when we ask what's happening with the story of the war in China. And more and more, I've become convinced there are two narratives going on at the same time, you know, at least two, but two major ones, which in a sense stand almost in contradiction to each other. But it's implied rather than stated. Number one is the more obvious one. It's the one that we saw in the parade, in a sense, just a couple of days ago. Troops coming down Chang'an Square, international leaders you know, the Chinese Communist Party uh, very much at the heart of it. And this is the idea that essentially the war is part of the path of ultimate victory in the revolution. So, you know, that's been there for a long time. And in some ways, it's quite a traditional old school interpretation sure but going on over 30 years and you know you made reference to this just now Kaiser has been I think a much more subtle but actually much more wide-ranging and inclusive alternative narrative of different sorts of stories about the war now we talked about the rehabilitation of the Guomindang, uh you know Chiang Kai-shek coming back into the narrative and actually my personal favorite if I may example of this I just saw Ooh, uh, let's say five months ago in April of this year, when I was out in southwest China, in Chongqing and even further near the Burma border, uh, making a documentary for um, TV about the second world war in china which actually is going out about now on history channel in east asia and also will be shown in china on uh, cctv as oh, well wonderful with, uh, we'll have to keep an eye titles. open for that yeah we'll keep keep an eye open it uh, you know you can uh, see me swinging across various trenches and trees violating all health and safety regulations <laughs> as i show how the japanese uh, were defeated by the uh, by the by the troops but as we were in chongqing i saw a site that really made me rub my eyes which is we went out to huangshan a uh, beautiful villa just on the outskirts of Chongqing, where Chiang Kai-shek, where Zhang Jishu had his retreat from the city during the bombings of Chongqing during the wartime period. And as you go in, there is a guy, an actor, dressed as Chiang Kai-shek with the long skull's robe, the little moustache, the bald head, the whole thing, there to meet and greet visitors and show them round the building. Now, 20 years ago, maybe even 10, the idea that Official, you know, curators would be hiring Chiang Kai-shek actors to stand outside his old house and welcome people <laughs> into the house it would have been absolutely unthinkable. Well, well an actor
1: ch- playing Hitler at the Holocaust
2: Museum. Well, pushing <laughs> pu- pushing a little bit. Uh, I remember which side Chiang was on on the the, the 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 Allies, but you know, it's it's unthinkable in uh, 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 in an earlier era. Now it's very much happening, and yet concentrating too much on Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang Party. I think maybe turns our eyes away from something that I think, in a sense, is more, is deeper and more long lasting, which is the ability of this new stealth rehabilitation of the non communist history of the war to let personal stories back in. One hmm. of the things I found most, you know, moving really about researching the book about. Japan's uh, sorry, China's wartime experience in the war against Japan was um, using some of the oral histories that were collected from people who evacuated out of eastern China, down the Yangtze up to Chongqing. And these people had had their stories collected in the 90s and the 2000s. They had obviously left, you know, either as children or, you know, as young adults. And they had to wait, you know, 50 years or more to be able openly to tell stories of tremendous hardship, suffering, many of them lost children or parents along the way. They were stuffed into boats. They didn't know if they might be sunk by bombs. But because they had made the decision to go upriver to Chongqing and not inland to Yan'an, the communist headquarters, those stories were taboo until the opening up that we're talking about. Mm. Now, that has nothing much to do with communist versus nationalist as a political issue. It has to do with human choices. And I think it's a really... A wonderful thing that, in those last twilight days before that generation dies off, they were finally able to tell their stories. Hmm. I think that um one thing that we ought to point
0: out is the, the extent to which this the changes in the narrative are a result of a change in the external environment. Uh, we, you know it, it it has to do with the dynamics between the Guomang and the DPP. It has to do with the the vicissitudes in the relationship between China. And Japan between China and the U.S. between China and various claimants to little flecks of coral in the South China Sea, uh, all of these they, 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 these things all all impact this, right? I mean, and if you were to sort of uh, of line up the curves, uh, you would see, I think, similar inflection points.
2: I think that's absolutely right, and one of the things that you know we should be honest and say is that I don't think that the widening out of the, you know, historical message, the historical discourse about the war in China is the product of some altruistic desire for historical objectivity by the party. I mean, you know, <laughs> there are about a lot of things those guys. But that's a very not, daring know. statement. <laughs> I know. And there'll be a lot of controversy about no, that, no, but, no. you know, strange to say. But, of course, one of the reasons that there is this new interest in this period is that if you go back and look at what the Guomindang, you know, the previous government were about, they were very much about making sure that in a post-war settlement, you know, they knew the war was going to end, and by the mid-1940s, they knew that they were going to be on the winning side. Once the U.S. had got into the war, it was inevitable that over time the Japanese Empire would be defeated. You know, Winston Churchill knew that, so did Chiang Kai-shek. They couldn't stand each other, but they agreed with uh, each other in terms of uh, understanding mm, the American mm-hmm. influence. So that being the case, we now know, for instance, from reading Chiang Kai-shek's diaries, which of course are now famously available to, to scholars at the, the Hoover Institution. Uh, there also, I think there are copies in China, but I always like the irony that Chinese mainland scholars have to go to California to read them because they're not available <laughs> in the, the Chinese libraries uh, and have made you know, extensive use of them uh, as well. So, if you look at the detail, you know, he was a guy who wrote his diary pretty much every day, which, you know, at least nothing else shows stamina. And he had a game plan for post war China. And it was one in which China would play a much more prominent role in shaping this region, the East Asia region, after the war ended. He probably thought it was more likely to be 1946, 47, but that sort of time zone. He thought that Korea was a country which needed to obviously come out of Japanese colonial control, mm-hmm. but in which China would then play a role. And he was thinking of his China, not communist China, mm-hmm. but China nonetheless. He had a lot of, you know, he wanted Hong Kong back and the British managed to march in very quickly to make sure that he didn't get that uh, uh, um, achievement as well. And obviously in terms of the wider regional area, Indochina too, he felt that China had a role. Plenty of those agendas are ones that I think play into a wider feeling in today's China with a different party in charge that maybe China didn't get its chunk of change right. at the end of 1945, and it's now time to uh, to pay up.
0: That's very, very interesting. Um, let's talk about the narrative within China. I mean, there, there's been a lot of controversy. And before we, we, uh, we met up, I, I passed around an essay. Uh, that was uh, posted in a blog that's become quickly one of my very favorite blogs, uh, written by a guy named Ma Tianjie. Uh, Jeremy uh, and I have both plugged it on this podcast before. It's called com. It's Chinese public opinion, uh, a public opinion with Chinese characteristics. And the, 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 the post is called Down with the Nihilists. It's a great primer to the whole debate. Um, which which you know, has reached kind of a fever pitch as the day of the parade approached, uh, with the official party organs kind of ranting and raving against this historical nihilism or nihilism, um, and uh, more vociferous critics of the party kind of seeking to refute not only the party's orthodox version, but essentially to deny any meaningful participation in the war effort by the communists at all. Um, and so, Rana, you're, you're somebody with a good grasp of the history, and presumably nothing at stake ideologically. So, where do you come down on this? How do you apportion credit?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I get asked this question a lot in sure. China because there is so much. Uh, no, I'm not suggesting it's a good, not a good question. It, it, it is. A, it, it's one of the most important questions. But as you've it's suggested, it's one of the shibboleth questions. It's so a shibboleth I mean, question yeah. because it, it again, it's about ideological positioning. Do right. you find yourself, you know, basically wanting to boost the Kuomintang side or the Communist side or something else? And so, I've come up with the following answer. Which you know historically I would stand by, and I think is very much at the heart of the case I, I try and make in, in in the book. It has three parts, but they're three short parts. So let me go through them just one by one. Number one, the vast majority of the set piece. Frontline battles were fought by armies that were either Guomindang armies or armies of militarists associated with the Guomindang. Feng and uh, yeah, right, Feng uh, Liu Zhongren, Bai Guo—you know, you know, Baiguan-Shi, a lot, yeah. lot of people um, who were uh, who were part of uh, 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 of the. So many of them are actually parts of the the so-called Wanpo uh, Huang clique, yeah. who actually you know were wary of Chiang Kai-shek, but actually fought in the end, mostly on his, his side. So when we think of battles that are like Shanghai, uh, mm-hmm. 1937, Taiyuan, 1938, Changsha under Xiu, Xiuyue several times, three or four assaults on that yeah, city, sure. these are Guomindang versus Japanese battles or at any rate um, National Revolutionary Army um, battles. So that overall is the battlefield question. Of course, there are battlefield um, conflicts that are communist-led. Hundred Regiments Campaign in 1940 under Peng De Hui is the most uh, notable of uh, of those. But for the most part the CCP are not leading that sort of battle. On the other hand, when it comes to guerrilla warfare, which is ideologically as well as militarily one of the important innovations of the war, I'm sure many people will know that in 1938, Mao wrote what remains one of his most read and most respected essays on protracted Mm -hmm. warfare, which has a great deal about how conventional warfare may not be the way in which the war will be won and that it's going to be a long and not a short one. The communists have a lot theoretically and practically to do in terms, uh, to, to offer in terms of harassing the Japanese and making sure they can't settle down. They're okay near the railway lines, but once you get out into the countryside, they are be given a hard time. Now, the Nationalists also have a lot of guerrilla um, uh, warriors out there, but the Communists make a real contribution, particularly in north and central China. The final part, though, and this is where the Nationalist versus Communist battle, you know, in a sense gets superseded, is that without external intervention neither side would have won the war against japan the fact is that you know china's role in the war does need to be taken much more seriously than it has been but there is no way that they would have won overall without first of all in the initial period of the war um small scale but pointed and essential soviet intervention soviet fighter pilots in particular Mm -hmm. helping out the nationalists but then from pearl harbor onwards the united states and the british empire providing money providing materiel. The one thing they don't provide, of course, is on-the-ground combat troops in China. Those are Chinese battles fought by Chinese warriors, and we should never forget that. But in terms of the overall supply of goods from the hump, uh, loans, actually pretty cheap loans, really, of money and so forth, the Allies were essential to the eventual victory. So you need all those three parts, I think, to actually make the Chinese uh, victory in 1945 come together. Mm. And yet it's come down to this
0: sort of black and white. If you uh, give more weight to the KMT or to the Americans, you're some right deviationist. And somehow, if, if you think the CCP played any kind of a role at all, you're some kind of brainwashed commie stooge. Fortunately, I think that we've kind of converged on something more sensible. Um, there are there's a PLA major general who's quoted in that piece that I, that I mentioned in Chublick Opinion, uh, quoted very approvingly, and he takes a very middle ground position. I think it's maybe worth reading. He says, in the past, our account of the war was often shaped by immediate political needs, which led to biases and exaggeration. Because of our post-war hostility towards the United States and in order to highlight the power of people's war, American victory in the Pacific was downplayed, while... Landmines and tunnels were depicted as the major weapons defeating the Japanese. After the reform and opening, mainland China proactively upheld the Guomindang's role in the war. However, in the process, some media outlets went too far by exaggerating the overall importance of the China theater in World War II. Even if this could somehow elevate the public's spirits and pride in the long run, this would create distrust in such propaganda in general." have a nice middle-of-the-road uh, I, I Actually, it. I don't
2: think I'd disagree with I mean, I just heard that for the first <laughs> time but from what you've just read out, Kaiser, I don't think I'd disagree with a word of it That sounds entirely right I, Rana,
1: what do you think of the... I- I've often thought that Mao's remark to visiting uh, Japanese... Uh, was it an ambassador who Tanaka nice, Tanaka? He didn't, he didn't say I think this just two, once, he said this
0: many times yeah. saying, and, Tanaka, and, and I think Tanaka
1: was, word, was yeah. apologizing for the atrocities and he said, please, don't apologize without, without you, we'd still be out in the hills <laughs> What isn't that? How do you see that? Isn't that a tacit admission? In fact, no. It's
2: a. It's, it it's a joke. It's a, He's kidding.
1: But there's no such thing as a joke, Kaiser.
2: Okay. <laughs> no, we don't do jokes on this podcast. I <laughs> gathered. Um, so I think there is. You know, it's. I'd say it, it, it's an ironically meant comment, and I would gloss it in the following way. On the one hand, at one level, I think it is absolutely fair to say that you know, look at 1935, end of the Long March. You know, the Long March has now become. A legendary event in Chinese Communist Party right. history, you know, being on Mythical, the Long march. Right. Mythical in the sense that, you know, I mean, now if there are any veterans left, they're very, very ancient from that march. But that's mm-hmm. the most respected position you can essentially have in the party to have been on the march. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that obscures the fact that, you know, in a sense, the Long March was a massive retreat from the extermination campaigns of Chiang Kai-shek, which were beginning to get close to some sort of success and could have been a real disaster for the CCP. Sure. And then when the war comes along and they have to form an alliance between the two sides, which we now know is actually in the offing, probably as early as 35, 36, um, uh, Chiang Kai-shek and other nationalist leaders were involved in uh, in negotiations, even before the famous Xi'an incident of, uh, of late 36.
0: Just just. For people who don't know, the Xi'an incident that happened in, in December of 1936 was when Zhang Zuolin, uh, um, his son <laughs> Zhang Xie <Liang, laughs> uh, uh kidnapped Jiang <laughs> Jieshi and held him prisoner in Xi'an in uh, a, a villa <laughs> where... The, co- yeah. the
2: conventional story has been that this forced Chiang Kai-shek into signing an agreement with the communists to fight with them but in fact most research now <laughs> says that there's a more subtle reality it may have pushed to some of the way but in fact the communists and nationalists had already been negotiating that direction and Chiang Xiu-Lang hadn't actually realized that ah, um, I didn't there's some subtleties to the story at any rate Chiang uh, uh, jie was did
1: not have a change of heart <laughs> <laughs> no
2: no no well also the thing is that I mean without going too far into the, 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 the obscure but very interesting uh, sidelines of that history frankly if you'd been kidnapped and made sign an agreement, the moment you got free, you'd of probably course. go back on it because of why course. would you feel obliged? So yeah, I think right. that gives some some sense that the story. is a little, little bit more complex. But getting back to the point of it, it's clear that the threat of Japan in 36, 37, makes it clear that the communist versus nationalist battle is going to have to be put on hold. Even Stalin, you know, when... Chiang Kai-shek is kidnapped, uh, makes it very clear that the Chinese communists, Mao and the others, are not going to execute Chiang Kai-shek, because a China without Chiang is a China that might fall prey to the Japanese. That's right. And so by the stage of uh, of, uh, of the war actually breaking out, you then have, of course, this war that is immensely destructive of the nationalists, the Kuomintang state, right. eventually breaks it down. And that does give an opportunity for the experiments in government, in social revolution that the communists have to eventually take hold. But the thing that makes it not quite so black and white is that you do have to think about what are the fundamental issues in 1930s China that the communists were trying to address. And the answer is that China did still have an economic crisis. It did still have a social crisis. It is very likely that some form of insurgency would have operated and occurred in China even if the war with Japan hadn't broken out, because the social tensions that Chiang Kai-shek was trying to solve by military means were real, and they could not have been solved simply by you know shooting people and putting them down. If the communists hadn't done it, someone else might well mm-hmm. have done. Very and well so said. That's yeah, part yeah. of the answer yeah. to Tanaka's question. I yeah. think, you know, if the communists hadn't done it, someone Somebody would else would.
0: <laughs> so I'm,
2: I'm curious, Rana
0: or David, either of you know how the war is taught today in PRC Middle schools, high schools, undergraduate programs. Uh, how, are
2: are there curriculum guidelines on how to apportion credit, as it were? So I have a I have a sense of that, and I think well, David. Yeah. So, but um, in a sense, the educational um, channels through which knowledge about the war comes are quite various and subject to different levels of control. So, again, briefly to go through some of the different um, uh, channels. At one level, um, things like you know popular television programs, soap operas and dramas about the war have, you know, a certain amount of leeway to put, you know, favorable Guomindang officers and maybe not Chiang Kai Shek himself, but, Mm. you know, sympathetic characters on on screen. And that's now quite mainstream, even with video games. um, I'm not a player myself, but I'm told by those who do, you know, massively multiplayer online games, uh, party censorship allows you to play some Guomindang generals, but you can't play the Japanese. That's generally not allowed on those uh, on those video games. But when we come to textbooks, when we come to school textbooks, there is still a big top down uh, level of control over what's in there, and it's very straight down the line. There's a lot of emphasis still on the CCP, a little bit about the, the nationalists, but you know, not, not so much. It's not necessarily denigratory uh, of the, um, the nationalists anymore, it just does, tends not to mention them all that much because the national importance of textbooks is such that it, I think, achieves far more attention than, say, you know, TV dramas or, or video mm-hmm. games in, in that sense.
1: Yeah even though in a certain sense it's it's actually probably much less influential on the minds of the young people reading because they read it and throw it away you know Well that's uh,
2: the irony I think you know, yes but,
1: the, but it's tr- it's true the textbooks uh, over the and you're right they're very very top down I've only looked at the uh, the uh, the uh, appraisals of Mao in the textbooks, which have changed a lot since since the '80s uh, and and with the with, I know as far as the Guomindang, yeah since inst- instead of vilifying them, they just don 't mention they downplay them and don 't mention them. As
2: well. I would plug actually, and people might want to search online there 's a great article uh, in the Financial Times just about a week or two ago, uh, or I should say uh, for those listening to this podcast at a different time, that would be in mid August comparing textbooks in South Korea, China and Japan and looking at various historical incidents and rating them for kind of historical (laughs) reliability. And one of the interesting findings is that the Chinese communist textbooks aren't nearly as bad as you might think. I mean, they've still got plenty of propaganda in them, but they're not as blatant as people who've looked at Maoist stuff might assume.
0: (coughs) Let's talk a little bit about this phenomenon of the Mingguo Re, the ROC fever that that we've seen in in recent years. Where does this come from? Is this simply something, is is it intended solely as a rebuke? Uh, to the CCP? Is, is it, does it grow out of oppositional politics? Or is this something that, that was quite deliberately allowed to happen? Uh, again, as I suggest, as, as, as playing against the dynamic between the DP, DP, DPP and, and the KMT? What's, where does this come from? And, and, and what's the extent of it?
2: My own take on the Republican fever, the, the Minguo-re, is that in some ways it speaks to a sort of historical echo. I mean, I'm sure you know that wonderful phrase by now, a cliche that history never repeats itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Sure. And I think there's a huge amount about the China of today that rhymes, so to speak, with the Republican period. In other words, you have this period of a kind of Authoritarian state which wants to control an awful lot of discourse, but on the other hand, it's is internationalized. Is developmental. It's right. internationalized enough to want to kind of open up to the outside world and take some of those influences uh, uh, as, as well. I mean, the major difference, without going to too much, is that I think the Republican state was immensely weak, whereas the current PRC straight state is is pretty strong. All, all things being ideologically, being you see
0: core. very little difference. I mean, I, I think that we are in an aging decade again. I mean, it, well, it, it I, really does. What I was going to
1: say is, in a way, it's the the the, the is on the part of the the Chinese. PRC government, because in a certain ironic sense, you know, the style and the ethos of Mao, once Mao died, and now, now in the current time where they're actually reviving Confucian, well, Confucianism, right. sounds more like Chiang Kai-shek than it does well, Mao. Well,
2: it's funny, I mean, uh, there's a line actually in another book I wrote uh, called "One China, a very short introduction, where at the end of a sort of description of China today, I say... If the ghosts of Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong are wandering around China today, Mao is shaking his higher head, saying, "No, no, this is terrible." Whereas <laughs> Chiang Kai-shek that? is <laughs> nodding his head, saying, "Yeah, that's yes, kind of what I meant." This they is they about mean, what, that's what I, I meant. Mean. No, no, yeah, I, I, I've, I've made
0: exactly the same observation. That's yeah, that's, that's, that's 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 lovely. That's right.
2: Uh, 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 in,
1: including the police state tactics <laughs> and the interrogation.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. No, the authoritarian the, part it, is there. Every bit as much great. as the cosmopolitan part. Yeah.
0: Well, these are both, both Leninist there. party states. Uh, that now from, uh, they, they've had – they've uh, basically uh, hollowed out. The ideological uh, components of okay. the I mean, Could I just add something
2: yeah. here? Because I think one right. of the things that I often find, you know, I think concerning in terms of historical accuracy is when people are setting up the Kuomintang – in in opposition to the Chinese Communist Party, they're sometimes a bit ahistorical. The Kuomintang of today in Taiwan is a liberal and democratic party. I have no problem with that at all. But let's not kid ourselves that Chiang Kai-shek's Guomindang was some sort of missed liberal alternative in China. It was not. It had, in some ways, a very similar sort of idea about how a strong state should be created. The difference, of course, it didn't believe in violent class warfare, but violence and authoritarianism authoritarianism, were absolutely central. Democratic
0: centralism was essential. It was an explicitly Leninist party. Yeah.
2: So, you know, let's not kid kid ourselves
0: about that. Not ideologically, but in, in terms of its structure. Right. Very good. I want to talk about your book, which I adore. I mean, I loved this book. It was um, it was a terrific read, and I've recommended it before on this show. That's very kind um, to say. It, you. It's it's been seen both by critics and by those who've praised it as aimed at, again, the rehabilitation, or even as a part of a larger project to rehabilitate John shek and his role in the war. And that's not just about balancing the CCP's narrative, but about balancing a narrative that's dominated at least in the Anglo-American mind, in large part because of the popularity of Barbara Tuckman's book. Uh, stillwell well in the American experience in China which really lionized stillwell old vinegar Joe and and accepted as f- at face value pretty much his criticisms of Zhang who he really he's contemptuous of I mean he he refers the to peanut. A, the, the peanut, peanut right mm-hmm. the peanut right um it was the peanut the peanut the peanut, right, the yeah uh, the peanut it's always the right. hmm. At least he was kind enough to give him that, that, that definite article. <laughs> it was the peanut. There was no, no yeah, other peanut no to be other. considered.
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, that, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the first thing I should say is that, that said, Barbara Tutman's book, Stillwell and the American Experience in China, which is, you know, an account essentially of, of the American commander-in-chief of Chinese forces during World War II, General Joseph Stillwell, and his frustration with the war experience in China – although it's you know, very biased in the sense that, of course, it's written entirely from Stilwell's own papers and people right. who are sympathetic to him, it does still give a very good bird's-eye picture of how things looked from his point of view, and it's very, very readable. But the problem is that we didn't have, I mean, to be fair to her, you know, in those days, we did not, for instance, have access to Chiang Kai-shek's diaries. And the one thing that we can do now, you know, Jay Taylor, who wrote a fantastic biography of Chiang about four or five years ago. The Generalissimo. The Generalissimo. And actually, scholars in China like Professor Yang Tian-shu of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, uh, you know, right here in in, in Beijing, has also written a Chinese book, uh, you know, Searching for the Real Chiang Kai-shek, in two or three volumes, which, you know, gives a much more sympathetic viewpoint about him. Hearing at least the man's voice through his diaries gives the other side of the picture. Now, this is not to say that we should rehabilitate him in the sense of thinking that Chiang was therefore a great genius who made all the right decisions and knew the right uh, side of the way that every decision would come out. But it means that, again, instead of this kind of very black and white view, you know, American modernizing presence versus backward Chinese inability to understand the true nature of warfare, we have the picture of much more ambiguity. I mean, yes, a, a wartime Chinese state that was corrupt, subject to black marketeering, hugely inefficient, immensely abusive of human rights in many ways, but also the product of essentially being boxed in on all sides by a fierce enemy, uh, unable to run a normal economy because it was simply cut off from most Mm -hmm. of the rest of the world and desperately trying to survive while its capital city was being, you know, bombed to pieces by by raiders. Uh, All of these factors have to be taken into account to make a fair assessment. Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: My father grew up during the war in Chongqing, and uh, so know that. You know, His father was uh, an historian. He was actually tutor to to Jiang Jingguo. Uh, he was the founder of the Academia Sinica's Modern History Bureau, the historian Guo Tingyi. Uh,
2: listeners can't see, but I'm now bowing down in front okay. of you, basically.
0: <laughs> anyway, uh, but my, my, so my, my father, um, he, the, the you know, the bombs, the sirens would sound. My, I mean, my father has one of these oral histories. In fact, I've recorded ex- many, many tens and uh, maybe hundreds. Many many tens of hours of of, of of interviews with him about this, but uh, in Chongqing he had the chance to encounter Jiang on a couple of occasions. One when he had actually resigned the presidency and was only nominally, notionally at least, he was sort of early forty nine, right, right. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. This is before this was this is well um, during the war when he was just Xiao <laughs> Zhang, when he was you know um, he wasn't actually uh, technically president, technically president was but, Lincoln, but um. Yeah and did spend a lot of time at the national university there and uh my father once was playing basketball out on the court and he 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 came up and uh apparently went unnoticed. The The kids were still playing basketball, including my father, and then he just wrapped his cane very, very loudly on the floor to demand their attention, and they stood there awkwardly as a, a basketball rolled by. And uh, that was his one. And the second was in the canteen of the school itself, which I think is just something about the character of the man. He would, you know, They had this god-awful rice, I mean, full of weevils and and, and, and stones, and... My father was only a few seats away from Zhang, and they were watching as he, he took this bowl of rice and held it up with his chopsticks and just ate. They could hear the sound of the crunching rice, but his the expression on his face was... in It was... Stoical, you know, he was this, this hard, disciplined mm-hmm. man, and he said this really formed his impression of him very, very clearly. Anyway, uh, I, I, that's neither here nor there, but um, the, another character that you talk about in this book that I think is, is, is fascinating, um, you use this great device of Zhou of Hai. Um, uh, I think that was a kind of a brilliant choice as a kind of, let's maybe call him a
2: quasi-protagonist. Uh, he's a person who could take you into
0: different camps, for one thing.
2: I, th- I think that's right. Well, thank you for noticing that, Kaiser. It's one of the things I was most keen to do in the book. I mean, I should say for those who I'll say for those who haven't read it yet, although I hope you will do in a sense, the the story of the three paths China might have taken in the war towards the nationalist Kuomintang or towards the communists, or of course towards the collaborators with Japan, I chose to focus through three personalities in a sense. I mean, Chiang right. Kai-shek, Mao Zedong, of course. And actually, Wang Jingwei of course was the man who actually went over to the Japanese in 1938 and collaborated with them and formed you know, essentially a client government in Nanjing. The problem is that Wang himself did not leave behind huge numbers of papers and in fact died of cancer during the, the war. But fortunately for us, who want to understand what was going on, Zhou Fuhai, who was essentially his second in command, and in fact he had a real, you know, kind of ideological roller coaster in his life. He was a founder member of the Chinese Communist right. Party and then moved into the nationalists and then joined the collaborators. So um,
0: suggesting he takes you into each camp. Into each and, camp, and absolutely someone, and, and right. kept
2: friendships across the, the barriers actually for quite some time. But the reason that he's such a valuable Um, uh, actor, a protagonist, as you you say, is that he kept a diary that, for me, is every bit as fascinating as Chiang Mm Kai-shek's, because he really, you know, he gives the detail, you know, when, for instance, the one I love, partly because it has this sort of, you know, poignancy about it. He's very human, even though he's committing an act of treachery. The day he flies out of uh, Chongqing, the temporary wartime capital, down to Kunming to start the journey to collaboration, he's not thinking about politics, well, he is a bit, not about politics, he's not thinking about Chiang Kai-shek, he's saying, I remember Manchel, my old lover, who died some years ago. It's hard even to think of her name. It makes me sad, and you know, it's just this kind of deeply personal, thing, really right. very personal. I
0: um, mean, and then yeah. that, 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 I feel like you were humanizing well him, the collaborationists themselves,
2: and Wong himself too comes off as a little. I mean, like we, we maybe understand his motives a little more. I think so. I mean, I've always had this, I've tried to work out, I mean, I've written a few books of history now, as you've been kind enough to notice, and I've tried to work out what it is that motivates me to go towards the subjects I have. And I've realised, and maybe this is a you know, terrible thing to admit, but I'll have to say it, I have a penchant for losers. People who basically. I thought you were going to say sort
0: of intellectual
2: complexity. Wow, well, you know, that's, that's, that's a, that's a not, that's Thank you. That's a much. Psychological complexity. That's, that's a much. Psychological Losers, Losers have to have to, intellectual to, uh, complexity. To, uh, psychological, psychological complexity is what I Indeed. really mean. Indeed. Well, just thinking, you know, my first book on Manchuria is basically about people who were kind of left behind when the Japanese invaded Manchuria in the 1930s. Second book, A Bit of Revolution, is about Chinese liberals, who, as you know, over the whole century have been a rather <laughs> beleaguered <laughs> species of, uh, right. of, of, of person, although I continue to believe that they will come back one of these days. And this book, although, of course, it Looks at you know all three of these streams of thought. I have to confess my heart is a little bit with trying to rehabilitate people who made these terrible choices. It's not to you know excuse in any sense the fact that they went with the brutality of Japanese occupation, but to understand why they did it. And let me just give you one brief story. Um, you know it's researched beautifully actually by a historian called Charles Musgrove, and I've cited his, his excellent article on this in in the book. And it's the trial of Wang Jingwei's wife, a woman called Chen Bijun, right. a very significant revolutionary in her own right. Wang Jingwei, as I mentioned, died of cancer in 1944 in Nagoya, in fact, in uh, Japan, so he was never put on trial, but his wife was. And his wife made a really good case in the court in Shanghai in 1946. Um, she said, "Look." After my husband collaborated with the Japanese and formed a government uh, in uh, Nanjing, no Chinese living under his rule was ever bombed by the Japanese again. And, you know, the people in Chongqing could uh, could not say that. So he saved many lives. Now, it didn't stop her getting sent to prison, but her sentence was relatively light, although she did die in prison. And in the court, after she gave her evidence... People in the audience in the court applauded her. They clapped her. Mm. And I think mm. that shows the ambiguity, even at the end of the war, about quite what collaboration meant at a time when no one knew who was going to win.
0: And and yet somehow, I mean, his historiography, I mean, we've condemned him as a Quisling uh, pretty unequivocally. And uh, I mean, he was always that, that pantheon of villains when I was... Mm.
2: But but let's um, let's use that word quizzling and actually just drill down for a moment because I think it's 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 an interesting point about the difference between Europe and China here. Quisling, of course, was Vidkun Quisling, the guy who basically was the Norwegian Nazi. And, of course, people sometimes compare Wang Jingwei and the Nanjing regime under Japanese control to the Vichy, Vichy regime in yeah, France. Of the difference to me is that the Vichy regime, Quisling's regime, uh, the regimes in occupied Eastern Europe were complicit with genocide. You know, we essentially know that these are people who then helped the Nazis with the elimination of the Jewish and Roma and other people who were, you know, exterminated during the war. The Japanese invasion of China, and this is something, again, that's sometimes unpopular to say, so I'll take delight in saying (laughs) it, was a brutal and horrific series of atrocities, and no one who reads my book could doubt that. But it was not a genocide. You sometimes hear people who have a certain agenda, I think, trying to argue that Nanjing, the massacre at Nanjing, was a genocide. A genocide is not. It's not. A genocide is an attempt to eliminate an entire group and category of people. What it was was an unforgivable war crime, but Wang Jingwei seeing these things i think in some part of his mind along with desire for personal advancement along with a kind of selfishness did think that continuing to fight against an implacable enemy like japan would kill a lot more people than it might save and even if we disagree with him totally we have to understand why he made that choice Hmm.
1: that's right he was not the only one also who made uneasy alliances with japan for 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 similar reasons for for what they saw as a more desirable future
2: yeah well, you know also not to give you know huge amounts of justification to Wang Jingwei but since we're briefly on the, the subject his argument also was that if he was collaborating with Japan well Chiang Kai-shek and the communists were collaborating with the Soviets and why was it better to be in hoc to the Russians than the Japanese if you're going to be in hoc to a foreign power at least he thought that they're, the communists, Asian, right? they're Asian at least they won't carry out the kind of you know atrocities that communists are well known to commit I will leave it to listeners to decide whether or not there is. Any justification or not in that particular uh, uh, argument, but I put it to you as the way that Wang certainly saw it.
0: Speaking hmm. of the anti-colonialism, that etc., that's another piece of your book that I really enjoyed. Um, the, the, the chapters that, that have John Caijie interacting with with Gandhi uh, and with with other le- leaders of. of I'm trying to convince them to throw in with the war effort, even as they were struggling to to break free of British imperialism. That, that we won't go, go into that here; it's a little too off topic. But I think it's another great reason to read this book if you haven't already. What I want to do with the rest of our time here is talk about the September 3rd parade. Uh and the parade, you know, 100. I'm sorry, twelve thousand soldiers, all that pageantry and military muscle on display. Uh, is it? It's itself, as we were saying, it's it's an interpretive act representing a particular gloss on history and. The parade itself is maybe too fresh to be called history. Already, I sense that one's attitude toward it, whether among Chinese people, among China watchers, or within the larger international community, is, again, it's kind of a a bellwether, a shibboleth, right? I mean, it tells you what you thought of the parade, tells me, speaks volumes about what you think of of this leadership. Um, uh, What was the parade meant to project? I mean, we've heard all sorts of theories. I'm I'm curious, David, what, what, for you, just gut reaction, what was the parade meant to project, and who was it? Trying to reach. What are some of the more plausible theories?
1: Well, I mean, despite the the comments, the disclaimers that it was not about current sino. uh, Sino-Japanese uh, Japanese Japanese. relationships. It was about current Sino-Japanese relationships. Uh, that was that was one thing. Was this very clear? Otherwise, if because they who are so good at controlling the message and so good at, at planning all this in, in advance could easily have staged any number of events or brought invited any number of people that would diffuse the the, the message that perhaps this was a, a, actually you know meant to ramp up anti-Japanese sentiment. They didn't bother to do anything like that. So I mean that's that's one thing. The other thing, I guess, is just the obvious thing that it's also not just about the war it's about the current uh uh standing of china in the world and xi jinping's control uh, and and also his the the you know the, the the fact that he made it a military parade which he certainly did not need to do he could have waited until uh, until the anniversary of the party in in two th- in two thousand and and twenty nine or whatever twenty
0: one <laughs> to, to uh well no doubt we'll see on comes up. So, yeah. he's out of office by then yeah, by twenty seventy. Right. Uh,
2: but uh, yeah absolutely. Well, not- well, it was
0: it was clearly meant for multiple audiences, right? I mean, you know, it was seen differently by different audiences by the bai Xing, by Chinese elites, by Xi's polit- potential political rivals, by different claimants to the contested coral flex that I made reference to earlier, um, by the, the the big powers that back those claimants, by potential arms customers, I suppose. Um, so, was it effective? Was it effective? Uh, was it an effective piece of political theater?
2: I think that there, for those multiple audiences you've mentioned, uh, Kaiser, there will be different levels of effectiveness. So, I mean, I'd echo exactly what David says, but just add a bit to it. I mean, you know, as well as clearly sending a signal to Japan, uh, I think that there are a whole set of signals being sent about, you know, wider intentions and claims, frankly, South China Sea being the obvious place, but even beyond that, India perhaps is a place which will have paid attention to this and you know, seen that there clearly is a great deal more um, uh, capacity than perhaps even they had uh, realized in terms of, uh, of China's uh, military abilities. Although, again, on the flip side of this, because in China there's, there's always a flip side, we should note that this is the year, 2015, when the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, mm-hmm. which was billed as Asia's NATO back when it was set up in 2001, has really, I think, failed to deliver in that sense, but made, I think, the most interesting move of its short life as an organization this year by letting in India and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And I think actually, although I suspect that, you know, basically Russia and China, who we all know are not actually the closest of friends, even though they're always claiming to be. Oh, they bas- are not. Yeah. They are not. But basically, I think the deal was, well, my date, you know, Russia says, well, my date is India, and then uh, China says my date is Pakistan, and they both <laughs> get in uh, on, those, uh, on those grounds. But the point is that letting India, particularly, into the SCO as a full member means that they now have a fully-fledged pluralist liberal democracy inside the organization so the old statement that you know the sco the shanghai cooperation organization is a dictator's club it's not untrue but it's a lot less true than it was before and it reaches an interesting level of ambiguity about the the projecting power in terms of influence of that organization so there are some sort of subtleties there just one other thing about audiences again it's been observed but before it fades too far into the past let's just say it again there were Kuomintang veterans at the heart of the parade now they weren 't mentioned explicitly in the speech or much around the event, which actually had very little to do with the history. It was mostly about the you know the, the weaponry and uh, and so forth But if you just project back a few years, the idea that at the heart of the biggest state parade in China you know for years that there would be veterans from the other side of the political divide, is something that probably would not have happened. And while I wouldn't claim that it's a complete 180 degree sea change, it's not without relevance either. Mm -hmm. Long live (laughs) the the民国热. Quite.
1: uh, Just a detail of of that parade, but what about the uh, surprise announcement that he was going to cut 300,000 troops? What do you think about that?
2: Um, somewhat surprising. I mean, I think there have been quite a lot of statements. You know, I think 2005, there was a big cut as well. And there have been statements sort of signaled that it was going to go down. I think there was a certain political shrewdness, actually, in announcing it in the middle of a big parade celebrating the military. Because yeah, that, on the one we'll hand, take you can a little say... Little bit of the edge off of it. Yeah, we love <laughs> you guys, but we're actually going to take away some of your personnel. And, you know, this is a way of putting the honey and the vinegar together, I yeah, think. So, you right. know, certain well,
1: shrewdness, I, actually. I th- to me, I thought it was the sound of 300,000 iron rice bowls. <laughs> (laughs) crashing, clattering to the ground, don't you think?
2: I would have thought that certainly in terms of the employment lines or unemployment lines, it might be a bit problematic. But, you know, clearly there has been a trend and it's been a trend over decades for moving China's military away from lots of boots on the ground to... Upping the technological yeah. capacity. Armies all over the world are reducing their size, right. and you know, the Chinese will still have, what, 2.3 million? Yeah. Do people they really need
1: the 2.3 million? Most of whom <laughs> are in offices wearing uniforms.
0: You know,
2: well, you know, it's a it. very good place for them to be, I think. <laughs> yeah, My exactly. favorite little
0: meme that came out of this was the, a photo of these three honor guards. Uh, one of them, they're all carrying flags, but one of them had his face covered by the flag, an unfortunate gust of wind, and netizens decided he was going to be downsized. <laughs> <laughs> um but but i mean as i watched the parade i mean you know i mean it, it was it was i think i think the, a lot of people you know china watchers of my acquaintance um in their social media posts uh that they were they were watching they were struck by the kind of heartfelt pride that they saw even among some of the more hardened cynics people who had in in the weeks and months before been very very cynical about it i mean this is true of a lot of my friends um quite palpable, the, the kind of pride. They were all passing around pictures of their grandfathers and in, 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 in their medals, and, and there was an earnestness to, to the thing, I thought, which, which was kind of a disconnect with, with the, the kind of sneering that we saw uh, among a lot of the, the anglophone media.
2: I think there are two halves to this, and one half, I think, is really something that we need to stress more, and I think the other half gets in the way. The half that gets in the way is that there is so much concentration on... Weaponry on the military, on China's territorial claims, on what China wants in the world now. And because, you know, inevitably, like any set of territorial claims, it's subject to geopolitical dispute, that becomes the subject of debates and even cynicism. And frankly, I'm not surprised. What that obscures, and I think this is the shame, is the fact that there is, for me a historical injustice that was being righted, at least in part. And that's nothing to do with China's military claims today. That's to do with the Chinese contribution historically to winning the Second World War in Asia. I do think that that has been underplayed. That's why I wrote the book about the subject. And I would be very sorry to think that the thing that, you know, made people's, you know, lumps in people's throats, that made people feel a bit tearful, and I've seen plenty of people doing that, which is to do with the historical legacy should be obscured by a lot of claims about the geopolitics of today. Mm. The two can and should be separated for a commemorative event.
0: Well, there was another piece of this, which was, of course, the old uh, victimization narrative as well. I mean, this is, you know, now China will. I mean, the, 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 the feeling that so many people were trying Bain to Nian express. Was, right, exactly, right. The, the, the century of humiliation is finally and, f- and, 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 and permanently at an end. We will never be bullied again. We will never suffer the humiliation of... But um, I, I would be very critical of, the, 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 of Beijing's manipulation of that narrative. I, I think, you know, obviously, it has quite a bit of that's valid. The facts of what happened during the Jap- Japanese invasion are, in some sense, a, a valid objective truths. the way they've interpreted has has changed, as we said, in, in in relation to China's relationship with Japan, with the United States, and and so forth. Um, it disturbs me. I mean, the, the feelings about this whole century of humiliation have ebbed and flowed, and often, sort of, at the direction of of the party. Uh, it, it really disturbs me how these deep, heartfelt feelings can be so easily manipulated. Still, the Are manipulation. You, you of
1: felt it. it stronger in presence in the, for the parade than than usually in the, in the past. Or I while, did. You did weirdly. I yeah. Sort of leave, I sort of felt. I mean, it and I,
0: I'm not not somebody who likes goose-stepping military displays. I mean, I don't. Well, I, I I s- would I'm I would see that happen back home if I if it were ever to God forbid I would I would, right. I would I would hate it I would I would yeah. not just sneer, but I don't see I would,
1: but no, I'm talking about the the the, the victimhood the victimization the uh, self, the, uh, we I was thinking somewhat the opposite I was sort of thinking it's been a long time since we've heard that phrase you have hurt the feelings of the Chinese people it's it's uh, maybe a long you haven't time been th- doing it enough David, that's <laughs> <the> problem. <laughs> maybe, yeah we can do it on the podcast here I think uh, but, I just did. Uh, <laughs> And and but also the fact that you know one of the reasons for this this binan uh, you know is is. is to explain historically why China fell so far, who's to blame for it, and who the enemy is. And it seems like this is becoming increasingly relevant as China's the second the second largest economy. It but is. I mean,
2: it comes back to a question, and I'm not sure there's a simple answer to it, but it is about the question of historical objectivity because that's a phrase you actually hear a great deal more, particularly when Chinese elites and officials are attacking what they see as, you know, a widespread Japanese denial of what happened in World War II, which anyone who goes to Japan will know is not really exactly accurate summary japan is a liberal society it is a democratic society of course there are people with very dubious views which you know who who should be slapped down but many of the people doing the slapping down are you know mainstream japanese historians media people and elsewhere so you know that, that that's one thing the aspect though of talking about the need for an objective view of the past when it comes to the war obscures the story of course about the great leap forward and the cultural revolution and there is a sort of sense in which you think as a historian look you should be exposing all of the history and looking at it in a critical way. I suppose, you know, the when I put this point to, you know, uh, Chinese friends, they will sometimes say, Yes, but the Cultural Revolution and greatly forward the things we did to ourselves, and that's different from being invaded. <laughs> no, I, I understand and that. I've heard, but I've heard that, and more there is I do understand. And I was that. trying Aren't to work there? through the logic and work out <laughs> and that doesn't sound right to me. But why isn't it? Uh, why it depends on right? how you frame
1: it. There was, I heard, it, I saw a tweet that said, you know, some Chinese person said, any country that deny that that uh, denies its past and doesn't live up to its past responsibilities, you know, doesn't deserve to be a country. Or something said, the tweet said, what country are we talking about? <laughs> you know, if you just look at it as a denial of your own, you know, past transgressions this hypocrisy of the, high, of the highest order.
2: Absolutely. And of course, you know, as so often, the contrast in a lot of these issues comes when you just hop across the water to Taiwan. I mean, I was there in um, July as part of a sort of equivalent um, set of commemorations. I mean, not quite as sort of, you know, high profile as, as the ones in Beijing, but there was a sort of serious academic conference as well, a major thing. President Ma Ying-jeou actually, you know, attended that too and made his view seen. Now, on the one hand, the fact that the Kuomintang, democratic version is currently in power means that i think that there was a lot more emphasis on the 70th anniversary the end of the war than would have been the case had the dpp happened to be in the presidency um at that time on the other hand there is no denying and again my Joe himself has been very upfront about this that the guomindang has put its hands up and said you know pretty clearly 228, you know, the massacre of Taiwanese uh, elites on 20th of February 1947 and the months afterwards, we did it. They've we apologized. were wrong to do it. Yes. We apologise for it. It was complete shame. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that every single part of the past has been cleared up. It never is. But the Guomindang have really, you know, done a lot on that front. Mm. And that, you know, that obviously there has been a repudiation of the sea, of the Cultural Revolution. But essentially, they put everything on the shoulders of four people who are now conveniently dead. You know, the right. Gang of Four. It's you know, it's it's a way of clearing it out of the way rather than really drilling down and uh, and, and discussing it. Taking responsibility. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
0: I mean, we could go on for another hour, but uh, um, we're, <laughs> <laughs> let's do that over over a glass of wine and some fine food. But uh, for now, we need to, to hustle along and, and, and move to now the segment of our show where we make recommendations. And uh, w- usually, we, we begin with David.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm seeing if I can find the website here because it's very short, easy to remember, and that's why I forgot
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we will twiddle Keep our thumbs. That.
1: Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Okay, so what I'd like to recommend uh, is just, uh, first, I always seem to recommend these nerdy things (laughs) where you get into websites and dig into files. Uh, It's uh, the the Chinese, the State uh, Administration of Archives of China. And the site is very easy to remember. It's www.saac.gov.cn. And in addition to some of the usual stuff they have on there was old documents of Chairman Mao and Zhou Enlai and Zhu De and and other kinds of things from the war and other kinds of things at great administrative, you know, movements in the past. And it's fun to watch, to to look at these things because they've got, you know, the handwriting of Mao and you can see them scratch out characters they miswrote. I always love to see that. That's a great vindication for Chinese learners. But they've got some great stuff on, obviously, on the World War II and on the anti-Japanese war, including... uh, I just was browsing it before I came here, looking at, uh, you can download these uh, scans of documents uh, such as uh, arrests in Shanghai of various people uh, trying to corral uh, w- women or sort of to bamboozle women into coming in and, and kidnapping them for, for comfort women. Uh, several arrests in English uh, from the Shanghai police talking about how these women you know were tricked to go to hotels and then they were going to be kidnapped and taken off for house, houses of prostitution uh, and so on and so forth but there, there's a lot of very interesting stuff there's the complete set of recently they had these japanese soldiers who can who who printed their confessions that they translated into chinese and i think there's even some videos of them uh, uh, online but, it's, but th- these are all on file there. fascinating wow. and it's it's just a great uh, it's it's obviously very selective, but there's so much stuff there to look through, old photos and stuff you haven't seen, and mainly documents, which I find so fascinating, that tell so much more. Seeing the documents handwritten before your eyes is much different than reading about them.
2: Sounds like a website, absolutely. I shall be logging in as soon as possible in that case, Uh, David. That sounds very good. Um, I'll make a book recommendation, and it's got a war theme, but it's not a China war theme in this case. I've been reading a book by a well-known historian, Timothy Snyder. Uh, He wrote a very acclaimed, somewhat controversial, big history of the World War II period uh, in Eastern Europe called Bloodlands. But his Mm. new book is called Black Earth. It's a series of essays about... Um, the Holocaust in Germany and Eastern Europe, you would not think that there was anything new you could possibly say about, you know, the Nazi regime. Unlike China's wartime period, it has really been, you know, covered in all sorts of aspects over so many decades. And yet, actually, Snyder manages to put forward a whole variety of really very innovative, very exciting arguments uh, about the significance of the Holocaust, broadly speaking. I mean, just one quick example. He has a very, very interesting essay which talks about the way in which... um, Genocide was more or less successful, and I use the word in big quote marks. Um, you know, clearly from the Nazi point of view, horrifically. Um, depending on the level of state capacity in the various occupied parts of Europe, and he tracks, you know, he tracks it actually country by country, and it provides a sort of map of the Holocaust, which is not. In any sense, the usual sort of way in which uh, the the genocide has been understood. So, as a way of looking at you know a topic that's well covered through some very fresh eyes, Tim Snyder's Black Earth I think is uh, a really interesting read.
0: Terrific! Wow, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Cheery bedtime reading. Well. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, Take 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 it to the beach with you. <laughs> yeah, <really. laughs> exactly. My um, my recommendation is a meta recommendation. It's a recommendation of a list of recommendations. Um, a, a cynical listener, his name is Gareth Jones has compiled a list of all recommendations made across the 220 or 30 odd episodes that we've done since april of 2010 uh, and uh including names of all the guests who have appeared on the show and i i cannot be more grateful to this man i mean he's he's done a, a tremendous service and we will I'll put a link to it it's a, a google doc so um those of you inside china may have a little bit of difficulty accessing it but the rest of us uh who or you know those of us who have VPNs, uh, check it out. It's 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 kind of amazing, and it was it was really just thrilling for me to go back and see all these fascinating people that we've talked to over the years, and and uh, and the idiotic recommendations. I and now honestly.
1: it's and now it's made its strange loop into vicious recursion, as the dec- as it will have to document this recommendation exactly. on his exactly. own. Uh, exactly, this is
0: what I'm doing. This is this is for you, Gareth. <laughs> Ron Amitter, thank you so much for coming in. It was just a, such a pleasure talking to you.
2: Huge pleasure to be here, Kaiser and David, too. Thank you both very much. Thanks, for David. Me yeah, yeah, thanks.
0: And uh, we will see you folks next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care. Hey, hey.